He's Amit Carr, and I'm Telly Concepcion, and together we are Beyond the Numbers Podcast. We go beyond the numbers of sports and life to bring you the story within the story of the stories that matter. So come learn, grow, and have some fun with us. We are Beyond the Numbers Podcast. On today's episode, the guys go beyond the numbers of Christmas 2020. Trees, lights, holiday names, and shopping. Now that the NBA season has started, they get you ready. They also discuss the college football playoffs Final Four and make their final Heisman pitch. In NFL Nuggets, they go beyond the numbers of Week 15 of the 2020 NFL season. But first, their numbers of the day. Tell my number of the day is 28 and 34 with a loss to Thomas Brady and the Bucks. The Falcons are now 28 and 34 in their regular season since losing 28 to 34 to Thomas and the Patriots in Super Bowl 51. I'm my number for the day is 1,260 miles is the amount of driving you'll have to do this weekend, my friend. That's about 18 hours and 45 minutes of a commute from Florida to New York. But I have some good news for you. You can listen to Beyond the Numbers podcast the whole drive. We've got you and your wife, Barbara, covered. Safe travels, my friend. Before the business. Beyonders, it's time for Before the Business, where we answer your unanswered questions and find the numbers that went unfound in previous episodes. We have an update on Keontae Johnson. He is doing well and recovering. Thank goodness your prayers were heard and answered, and he's very thankful to be out. He's expected to be out for a minimum of three months and will likely miss the rest of the 2021 season. His parents, Nika and Marcius Johnson, announced Tuesday that he was being released from the hospital and would spend Christmas with them as a family. The family statement reads, we continue to be amazed at the pace of his recovery. Along with so many well wishes and prayers, we've understandably gotten questions about the cause and extent of Keontae's illness. As much as everyone involved wants firm answers, The process to draw definitive conclusions continues, and we ask for patience as the medical professionals continue their work. We are committed to sharing not only updates on Keontae, but also any information we think could help others when we have that. We will share it. Until then, we continue to be grateful for the care and support Keontae is receiving. And Ahmed, this is important because this is what our episode was about last week. We talked about Keontae. We talked about the NCAA response and how the school should handle this situation. We also shared with you guys that we weren't 100% sure if it was COVID-related. Now it's being reported that it is COVID-related, the myocarditis we've shared with you guys. Yeah, and it's interesting to see um, sort of the school's response, right? So the Sun reached out to the UF Athletic Director, Scott Strickland, on Tuesday regarding Johnson's condition, but of course he was unavailable to comment. A statement that Dr. Jay Clugston said, uh, told TV20 back in August, and he stated, at Florida, we do an EKG and an echo on every athlete that comes to us. So we have that on record already. So if someone gets COVID, 
and we repeat that cardiac workup, we're able to compare back to what they were when they came in as a freshman or a transfer here. So we have a pretty good idea if there were any changes. So that's what he said back in August. He went on to say, there does seem to be more cases of cardiac effects from this virus than maybe we've seen for others. Although we're looking a lot more closely than we have in the past. I think all of us are cautious about it. So clearly they saw some things back in August. Um, they're continuing to check. And of course, as information is gathered and comes out, we'll keep everyone updated. Again, the good news is prayers answered. He is out of the hospital. He's going to spend Christmas with his family and we hope that he has a full and speedy recovery. Just like we told you guys about last week about Marcus Camby, right? I mean, he collapsed. John Calipari coached him back in the day. He went on to play 18 years in the NBA. Moving on, Michael B. Jordan is launching an HBCU basketball showcase. It will be called Wakanda Forever. I'm just playing. It'll be called the Hoops Dreams Classic. It will take place in New Jersey and feature the four top D1 HBCU men's and women's basketball programs starting in December 2021. This is important, Amit. You sent this to me. I'm glad that you did and we're featuring it because we talked about HBCU, historically black colleges and universities, don't get as much attention athletically as a lot of other programs. So it's great that he's putting this on and showing what talent is available in those programs. And also to go back to that episode, HBCUs are not always predominantly black. There are three HBCUs that are not predominantly black and in fact are predominantly white and Hispanic. So this was mainly back in the day, if you didn't watch the episode or listen to the episode, um, was, was really there not just for people that didn't have access due to race, but also due to economic status back uh, when these were started. So definitely uh, it's good to see more of a push here uh, and hopefully this could be a pretty fun tournament looking at next year. Accessibility for all. That's right. That's right. But you know what? We got to make a hard pivot here because we're talking basketball and specifically college basketball. Kentucky basketball started the season one in five. That's the first time since 1926 that they've gone one in five. So yes, it's been 94 years since this historic start for them. That is crazy because that's longer, Amit, than the NBA has been around. The NBA started last night, and in full disclosure, we're recording this Wednesday, December 23rd, and we celebrated the 75th anniversary of the NBA last night. But Amit, weren't we just talking about the NBA just a few weeks ago, a couple of days ago? <laughs> That's right. This offseason was extremely fast. It was weird to see. It was weird to see. Hey, we're starting up again. I was like, wait, didn't they just finish last week? I was reading some articles about the uh, LA ring and how the guy had less than four weeks from design to making them and getting them out to everyone. Uh, so that's pretty cool. Charles Barkley was on a roll. He is also a role. Isn't he also he's, a role? He's, he's on a roll and he is a role. <laughs> him and Shaq are by far the best duo covering any sport. That show just needs to be its own show. It just warms my heart because they're hilarious. Ernie Johnson's their dad, like keeping them in line. They're cracking on each other. They gave out bikes to kids last night from the Boys and Girls Club. Shaq was dressed as Santa. 
I don't know who made that onesie omelet, but can you imagine how much fabric that took? Like straight up, a Shaq onesie, a seven foot, 300 plus pound man onesie on national television. Yeah, they definitely had to pay for some extra fabric on that one. The interview that Charles, that Chuck had with KD was phenomenal. Really some hard hitting journalism. That we'll be posting hilarious. up. We will definitely be posting up the uh, the link for that on Twitter. So definitely check that out. Uh, and the guys, man, they gave Paul George a hard time too. Yeah, that got kind of awkward because cause Shaq gets on and he's basically saying like, well, we know what you could have did last year, but you didn't do. But we're not going to talk about that. But they kind of just talked about it, right? <laughs> like yeah. They just said it. And they were also asking him questions about the departure of some of his teammates and how he got preferential treatment, him and Kawhi. So, yeah, they gave him a hard time. And actually, it goes back, right, Amit? Former athletes, you don't know what they're going to ask. When you're on Scott Van Pelt, ESPN or something, you kind of know they're going to stay in the lane of the game or ask, you know, softball questions. When you get on that show with Chuck and Shaq, and I would argue, too, when you get on with Big Poppy and MLB, those guys played. They can ask you whatever they want. Were yeah. the wings worth it? You had to leave to get some wings? Like, you're yeah. getting any kind of question they can throw at you. Yeah, because they've got that credit. They've they've been there. They've performed. So it's almost like they have a pass to ask you anything about the game, outside the game. Everything seems to be within bounds for them. So it's always fun. It's always fun to see what they ask and how those guys respond. Exactly. And we love Jalen and Jacoby. They always talk about going behind the curtain. And there is value there to having a former athlete who knows how this actually probably went down in the locker room, right? Like, yep. you know, like, yeah, there's the story that's reported. And if you've never been in a locker room, never had millions, never been jealous of a teammate, then you wouldn't understand. But if you've been there, that's a whole different perspective. And speaking of which, they also talked about Ahmed, this article about James Harden by ESPN's Tim McMahon, which goes on to report. I'm just going to read the first two lines of this article. The Houston Rockets culture in the James Harden era, which bridges two owners and now four head coaches, might best be summed up by a former staffer's three words, quote, whatever James wants, unquote. Now he wants out, but apparently he had full control. We're he definitely going to have to dig into this. <laughs> he did. And, and the conversations were, you know, whatever James wants, James gets. So if, if he wanted to leave late after a game, they would the plane would wait for him. If he wanted to go somewhere, they would, everything went hard and pretty much would show up when he wanted to show up, do what he wanted to do. And kind of basketball was just kind of there for him. If I don't want to show up to practice at 10, I want to show up at 1130. I'll show up at 1130. If we're supposed yeah. to take off at 9 a.m., but I don't really care to wake up before 11 and get there at 1130, they're leaving at 1130. And it was his show. this might be why Westbrook, one of his best friends, right? Why Westbrook wanted out, because I think you can knock Westbrook for a lot of things, but I think no one knocks Westbrook's heart, determination, and effort. I mean, whether he makes shots or not, we could argue about that, but he takes them. And he dunks and he runs after the ball and he dives on the floor and he plays hard. And I think maybe that had to do with him asking to to want to be off the team. And lastly, Ahmed, the preseason, basketball preseason was a blur, but LeBron James was out trying to hurt people, man. He tackled Mikel Bridges in a preseason game, didn't even get called for a foul. The guy flipped, had to be taken off the court. We'll put that in the Twitter for you guys also.
But let's get back to the business. It's time for our new segment, Amit. College football corner. It just felt right. There were so many stories that we were going to try. This is a production note to squeeze them before the business. But I was like, you know what? College football is too important for that. So we got to give it its own segment. College football corner this week. The final rankings have been released, and I'm going to read off to you the top four. Number four, Notre Dame. Number three, Ohio State. Number two, Clemson. Number one, Alabama. Let's discuss now. Before we jump into this, I want to make this very clear that this is not a college football playoff. This is a college football invitational tournament. I'm pretty sure if Ohio State had played three games, won all three of them, they would still be ranked number three and in this tournament. Makes no sense. Plenty of good teams out there that had to play through the challenge of a full season or as much of a full season as possible. I think it's nonsense that Ohio State made it through. Yeah, and that's what I wanted to talk about. So let me work my way backwards here because I got some beefs on it. I got some beefs with this. Notre Dame at four. My friend, Eris, cover your ears. Eris Noel III, that's my boy for a long time. He's a loyal beyonder since episode 00, played running back at Notre Dame. But this is my take. The committee threw a team in Amit that just got beat. I would have considered the ACC championship game a play in game because you really have to look at it this way. If they win, they're going to play Clemson again. Clemson thoroughly beat them this week. It took no Trevor Lawrence and overtime at home in front of touchdown Jesus for them to beat Clemson the first time. Then Clemson beat them all the way up and down the field this time. Now, my prediction, Alabama is going to do the same exact thing to them. Why even put them in there? They just played Clemson and showed they can't keep up. So they're not going to win the national championship against Clemson. I think the tough part is like they're both one loss teams now. Yeah. And I, I can see the one loss. They earned it, the one loss. But I think when you, like you said, it's an invitational, that tournament. Once you see, you see what the competition is lurking ahead and you see there's going to be a possible rematch and the, the team ahead of them in the ranking that just beat them didn't have their starting quarterback. That's a big piece. And they needed overtime to beat them by three. We're not talking about they whooped them without Trevor Lawrence and now Clemson returned the favor. You're talking about they barely squeaked by the first time. Otherwise, they wouldn't be undefeated. They'd have two losses to the same team, basically. Agreed, but a win is a win, a loss is a loss, right? And, you know, we talked about this last week with Florida, right? You lose to an LSU team, right? But you only go down in the rankings one spot. Don't get me started. Ooh, 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 wait, wait, hold that, hold that, because I'm, I'm going to respond to that. But let's get to Ohio State at number three. Ohio State at three. They played five games on it, barely beat Northwestern. I watched the game. Northwestern gave that game away three turnovers 
Northwestern gave it away. It was their game to have. And I don't think five to six games, honestly, is enough to determine if a team is one of the best in the country. Although we can argue that's what they do every year with the Big Ten and the ACC. Yes, that's a SEC burn. That's a SEC dig right there. But seriously, this is like having a baseball team I'm mean, play 20 games and saying, oh, yeah, the team that played 160, the, the team that played 20, they're just as good as the team that played 160. You don't know that. They could get hot. They could get cold. I mean, five games is just not enough. No, you're right. I, I agree. And that, that was my point in the beginning. If you were going to put Ohio State in, regardless of, of their schedule, what was? why do we even go through the season? What's the point? Don't have a season. Just put your top four preseason teams into a college football playoff and call it a day. Yeah, and that's exactly what we have. I'm pretty sure these were the preseason top four yeah. going into the season, and, and they just put them in. So Clemson and Alabama at one and two, Amit. You know one of our favorite movies here is My Cousin Vinny. The defense is case holds water. I got no arguments. Bama's won for sure. They're in a whole nother league of their own, in my opinion. Clemson number two for sure. This year's national championship game again will be Clemson and Alabama. Clearly the two best teams in the country. I'm taking Bama this year. I don't know. I mean, Florida gave them a run for their money and a couple of things here and there and Florida wins that game. And then we have a whole nother conversation about how this, how this one through four looks, Ooh, right? Ooh, you know, but let, but I, I told you, I come back to the Gators and you've heard this because we talk about this, but I haven't wanted to put anything in the show. This is a record. This is recorded. I know Elaine is listening. I know all the loyal Gator fans are listening. You know, I played at Florida. My heart's there. I bleed orange and blue, but we gave away the LSU game. We did not deserve to be in the top four after losing that game. Coach got cute trying to sit Kyle Pitts that game thinking, okay, we can sit Pitts. We can have him fresh for Alabama. We can still win this game. They tried to force the Heisman in that game. Trask was throwing way too much in the LSU game. We started the game just throwing. We had success with the run. We didn't stick with the run. Still had a chance to win at the end. Ended up losing by three. No qualms about it. LSU had 18 guys quit in the middle of the season. They left the program. They're going into the league or they're transferring out. They still beat us in the swamp. When I was there, we did not lose games in the swamp like that. No, that was not possible. We had juice. The team lacked juice. I loved the intensity. I loved the fire that we played with against Bama. And like you said, we came close, darn close in that game. And I would say that game came down to those 19 seconds. We didn't let runoff before the end of the first half, which allowed Alabama to go down the field and score their touchdown, which is what we ended up losing by. But we lost the LSU game and you can't be a top four team if you don't take care of business each week. And that's what Alabama does on it each sure. week professional. They don't lose to the bad teams and beat the good ones. We can't hang it up against LSU and then play like we're the number one team in the country against Bama. Like we're a top four team against Bama and then against LSU, we look like trash. Agreed, agreed. And, and look, I, I know you're on the Bama, ban not bandwagon, but you think Bama's going to go all the way this year. You really think Bama's got a team that can go undefeated this season? I didn't realize they haven't had an undefeated season since 2009. Yeah, it's, it's the SEC. It's hard to do. I think for the Gator game, look, just psychologically, in my opinion, 
just like we slept on LSU. Oh, they're not that great. We don't need to play our hardest. I think Bama slept on us a lot this week thinking, okay, the Gators, they're pretty good, but they're not Alabama. Nick Saban also said we were we present a matchup problem for them because they don't have the depth at corner and we could throw it deep. But you can see it comes down to running and at the end of the game, they were able to run out the clock just like Notre Dame was able to run out the clock or just like Clemson was able to run out the clock on Notre Dame. So it does come down to those things. I do think Alabama can beat Clemson this year. I think Clemson has gone through a lot of adversity this year. Either way, it's going to be a heck of a game. You know, in the SEC, Amit, whoever beats you, like, then the SEC unites around that person. So I'm going for Bam over Clemson this year. We'll see. We talked about earlier this year in the podcast, too. You know, Dabo had some controversial remarks. Um, Clemson did some walkabouts on campus and tried to correct some of that. They had some issues with coaches. So Alabama's been relatively quiet as far as controversy goes. The team has stayed united, except for the on again, off again. Does Nick Saban have COVID or not? I think he eats, sleeps and breathes COVID. So it's confusing. The test can't identify like he has the coaching COVID. He doesn't have COVID-19. You know what I'm saying? Gotcha. He's got the rat poison version of COVID. He doesn't have like the 19 version. You're right. I, I think I think it'll be fun. Uh, I think there are definitely some matchup issues, but um, I'm with you. I'm, I'm for Alabama taking this one. Yeah, and I think AM played well. They deserve to be in it. You know, they beat the Gators this year. They have one loss. They lost to Alabama. That's it. How are you not a top four team if your only loss is against the number one team in the country? To me, that's crazy. I take Ohio State out. I agree with you. Notre Dame only has one loss. They deserve it. They earned their shot in there, but they played 11 games, right? Yeah. And Texas AM played eight, nine games, only lost to the number one team in the country. They deserve to be in there. Ohio so State. I'm not trying to argue to get the Gators in there. I don't think we deserve to be in there because we lost to LSU. Ohio State didn't play enough games to be eligible for their own conference championship. They had to change the rules exactly to allow themselves in. So get out of here with this nonsense. Ridiculous. Much love but, to my Florida Gators. They did a phenomenal job. That game was amazing against Alabama. I was here through it all. And lastly, Amit, Kyle Trask, Kyle Trask for Heisman. There's no, if he doesn't get it, Amit, it's BS and the the system's rigged. He's got 4,125 passing yards. He leads all of college football. He has 46 total touchdowns. He leads all of college football. He has 43 touchdown passes. He leads the nation by 11. He only threw five interceptions on it. So he has 43 touchdown passes, five picks. You know whose numbers that matches up with on it? You remember from last week, our NFL Nuggets last week? A one Mr. Uh-oh. Aaron Rodgers oh, has thrown A-Ron. 40 plus touchdowns and five less or less eight. interceptions less and one MVP in the NFL. That was in 11 SEC games and is 375 passing yards per game led all of college football. If this award goes to the best player in the country, it's hard to argue against Trask. I'm not saying that Trask is better than Trevor Lawrence. Trevor Lawrence didn't play all his games this year, right? He didn't play all his games. He doesn't have the stats. You can It's not a career award. It's a 2020 season award. Kyle Trask, definitely the best player in the country this year. Mm-hmm. 
for our first story, we wanted to go beyond the numbers of Christmas in four aspects for you guys. First, there's Christmas trees, Christmas lights, holiday names, and shopping as well. The Christmas wreath originated as a symbol of Christ. The holly represents the crown of thorns Jesus wore at his crucifixion, and the red berries symbolize the blood he shed. So when you see a wreath this season, you'll remember the reason for the season. It turns out we were originally dashing through the snow for an entirely different holiday. James Lord Pierpont wrote the song called One Horse Open Sleigh for his church's Thanksgiving concert. But then in 1857, the song was republished under the title it still holds today, and it eventually became one of the most popular Christmas songs. Last week, we did talk a bit about Santa. And for those of you who tuned in, he did stop by to chat. It was and awesome. It was so it was, awesome. Was Santa cool. stopped by. He was hanging out. It was cool. It was cool. I was excited. Yeah, you were definitely excited. We wanted to talk about the nickname Saint Nick. And according to legend, the fourth century Christian bishop gave away all his abundance inheritance to help the needy and rescue women from servitude. His name was Sinterklaas in Dutch, which later morphed into Santa Claus. And Sinterklaas translates literally to St. Nicholas. So we get from St. Nick to Sinterklaas to Santa Claus, it all comes back to good old St. Nick. And also Amit, in the research now i discovered that santa didn't used to look so jolly he actually looked spooky in a lot of illustrations and it wasn't until 1931 when coca-cola hired an illustrator named haddon sunblom for magazine ads that we got what we think of when we think of santa claus today the jolly old elf and every year Letters to Santa flood post offices across the world, forcing parents to find a way to answer them or explain to the kiddos why their letters, you know, got lost in the mail. Cementing their reputation as one of the nicest countries around, some big-hearted Canadian post office workers started to write back. As the program took off, they set up a special postal code for Santa as part of the Santa Letter Writing Program Initiative. H-O-H-O-H-O -O -H -O -H -O, or ho-ho-ho. So thank you, Canada, for doing that for the kiddos. That's pretty awesome. I wonder if they have Drake write any lyrics on it. You think they get Drake involved? That He's he's a local Canadian. Celine Dion sings some songs. And, uh, you know, just get everybody involved in the Christmas spirit up there. Last week, we told you guys about Rudolph and his cayenne peppers. He needs that on his moss. That's how the red nose works. He needs the cayenne peppers. It lights him up. I don't know if any of you guys have seen hot ones on YouTube. That's pretty much what happens to Rudolph. That's how he can light the light the trail for Santa on his way. But Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer first appeared in 1939 when the Montgomery Ward department store asked one of its copywriters to create a Christmas story the store could give away as a promotional gimmick. The store had been giving away coloring books for years and decided to make its own to save money. When I read this Amit in my research, it just made me think of Mad Men because in Mad Men, they're copywriters and they basically come up with what we think of as traditions <laughs> and stories and things. So back in that day, somebody wrote this up for Montgomery Ward. That's crazy, that's wild. Let's jump to Christmas trees, Telly. When Prince Albert of Germany introduced a tree, 
to his new wife, Queen Victoria of England, it really took off across the pond. A drawing of the couple in front of a Christmas tree appeared in Illustrated London News in 1848. And as we say, the idea went viral. That's crazy because people are obsessed with the royal family and royals now. Right. And the first idea of a Christmas tree ever, the shape of it, it even had lights in the illustration. So really, if you guys get a chance to Google this, Google Prince Albert of Germany tree, and you'll find that he put he put ornaments on it. He put decorations. He put some candles in there as he presented as a gift. So yeah, that's pretty cool. And, and I just need to point out when you Google Prince Albert, make sure you include of Germany or first Christmas tree works as well. Yeah. And speaking yeah, yeah. of first Christmas trees, the first Christmas tree at Rockefeller Center, the world's most famous Christmas tree now, Amit, probably look more like Charlie Brown's Christmas tree than it does today. Although today's Christmas one, tree in yeah. Rockefeller. It was close. <laughs> it they does look a little bit like Charlie Brown's, but we'll we'll say it's Charlie Brown's 2020 Christmas tree, just like everything else in 2020. But the tradition started because construction workers at the site first placed a small undecorated tree while working there in 1931. Two years later, another tree appeared in its place, this time with lights. It grew and grew from there. Nowadays, the giant Rockefeller Center tree bears more than 25,000 twinkling lights and is visited by millions of selfie takers each season. In full disclosure, that's where I proposed to my fiance. Under the lights, Amit was also present there yeah. as our resident photographer. Yeah, so she didn't I know. Have experience with the Rockefeller tree. She didn't and, know. Uh, Rockefeller, we got to do better, man, than this year's tree. But do you heard about this owl that's getting famous off the tree now? No, I have not heard this. They named the owl Rockefeller. It's a female owl who was hanging out, camped out in the tree. They didn't discover it until they started decorating the tree. Now Rockefeller the owl has its own brand and has its own Twitter feed. So take that for data. <laughs> so let's talk about the origins of Christmas trees in the United States for the average person and how we came up with the idea and why people have them in their homes. So the New York Times tells us that a man named W.V. McGallard planted 25,000 Norway spruce seedlings on his farm in Mercer County, not far from Trenton in 1901, making his farm the first commercial Christmas tree farm. The seedlings grew and in 1908, customers came to the farm to choose their trees, buy them at $1 a tree, watch them being cut and took them home or had them delivered. That was the birth of a huge industry as well as a haven for wildlife. As that humble beginning has led to over 350 million trees growing today. Americans bought 26.2 million live trees last year to the tune of about two billion dollars. You know, according, we do it big here in America. Yeah, <laughs> we gotta yeah. do it big. According to the National Christmas Tree Association, a Littleton, Colorado-based trade group whose affiliation who, whose affiliates produce around three quarters of the United States supply. While the figure was drawn slightly, was down slightly from 2018 amid growing demand for artificial trees, last year was the, and I quote, first year in a long time that growers made a reasonable profit, according to reports from the National Christmas Tree Association. Americans are also more likely to splurge on their purchase this year. 
the median price for real trees sold in 2020 is expected to be about $81, up 7% from last year and 23% from 2018, according to Fortune. Yeah, and that makes sense, right? I mean, it's been a rough year. People are suffering. Also, if you're not visiting family, people might put trees up who otherwise might not because they depend on their family, their mom or dad or whoever to do that. So I think there's more trees and I can see the price of trees going out. Like I shared earlier, there's about 350 million Christmas trees growing on Christmas tree farms in the U.S. at any given moment and are busy sucking up carbon from the atmosphere. Shout out to trees. Thank you, trees, so we can breathe. The 2020 median price is expected to be about $81, like Ahmed said. And when we compare this, in 2019, the median price was $76. In 2018, the price was about $66. And in 2017, the price was $74. So it does vary from year to year. What are the best trees, man? When you go out there, what's the best tree to get? The best trees, the cream of the crop, Ahmed, the best selling species in the U.S. is of course, the Fraser fir. Of course. You no, know, the Fraser is up there. It's fragrant. It's very light and airy. It's beautiful. And then the noble fir, it's a little fuller of a fir. It's it's very it's a very noble fir. It is very noble. It's cloaked in nobility. Then the Douglas fir. Oh, makes Douglas. me think of Douglas Heffernan. So of the course. Douglas firm. I'm assuming it's a it's a fuller fir. You know, it's a little round in little, the middle. Pudgy pudgy in the middle and then it gets thinner up top then the balsam fur that one's a little spunky the balsam fur you got to have experience for the balsam you don't just stick balsam at home and then the scotch pine and just be careful the scotch pine just check your drinks because the scotch pine it, it'll it'll start drinking a little bit of scotch here and there so as we talk about christmas trees it's important to note that they are grown in all 50 states and while 80 percent of the artificial trees sold worldwide are manufactured in China, according to the U.S. Commerce Department. There are about 15,000 Christmas tree farms in the United States. A Christmas tree takes between four and 15 years to grow to a typical height of five to seven feet, depending upon the variety, weather, etc. And the average growing time is seven years. For every real Christmas tree harvested, one to three seedlings are planted the following spring. So it's the gift that keeps on giving an Amit. I just got to say, don't forget to water your trees. Dried out Christmas trees spark about 100 fires each year, cause an average of 10 deaths and result in $15.7 million in property damage, according to the Consumer Product Safety Commission reports. So that's big time. I'm out here in California. Trust me, there's a lot of fires going on. Please make sure to water your trees. Don't let them completely dry out. Along with trees, I'm at a lot of people hang up mistletoe. But we got a fun fact about mistletoe right here. Mistle thrush birds eat the plants, berries, digest the seeds, and then the droppings eventually grow into new plants. So the Germanic word for mistletoe literally means dung on a twig. So yeah. pucker up. Dung on a twig. <laughs> That's what people using to kiss other people. I'm going right. to hang this dung on a twig, twig over your head and hope that that gets you going. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I bet mistletoe sales go down if you rename it dung on a twig. <laughs> I'm sure it does. That's another copywriters, you know, they <laughs> changed the name to increase sales for the National Association of Dung, dung on a Twig. <laughs> <laughs>
So let's let's move on to looking at Christmas lights. Can't have a tree without lights. That's right. That's right. Otherwise, it's just a tree. In, in Thomas Edison's shop, setting up a tree by the street side window of his parlor, his assistant Johnson hand wired eighty eight zero red, white, and blue light bulbs and strung them together around the tree and placed the trunk on a revolving pedestal, all powered by a generator. Then he called a reporter. At the rear of the beautiful parlors was a large Christmas tree presenting a most picturesque and uncanny aspect, wrote W.A. Crawford, a veteran writer for the Detroit Post and Tribune. It was brilliantly lighted with 80 lights and all encased in these dainty glass eggs and about equally divided between white, red, and blue. One can hardly imagine anything prettier. The light did draw a crowd of passersby uh, and they stopped to peer at the glowing marvel. Johnson turned his stunt into a tradition. He also pioneered the practice of doing more each year. An 1884 New York Times article counted 120 bulbs on his dazzling tree. And this is crazy if you think about it, Ahmed, because they invented, obviously, Thomas Edison invented the light bulb. So you go from inventing the light bulb, no one has electricity yet, to putting them on a tree. Of course, it looked amazing to the people at the time. It's true. So Johnson's lights were indeed ahead of their time as electricity was not yet routinely available and they weren't cheap. A string of 16 vaguely flamed shaped bulbs sitting in brass sockets the size of shot glasses sold for a pricey $12 or about $350 in today's money in 1900. But in 1894, President Grover Cleveland put electric lights on the White House tree. And by 1914, a 16 foot string cost just $1.75. By the 1930s, colored bulbs and cones were everywhere. <laughs> so that's called adoption. Today, an estimated 150 million light sets are sold in America each year adding to the tangled million stuffed into boxes each January. They light 80 million homes and consume 6% of the nation's electric load each December. And though the contagious joy of these lights has been co-opted orange at Halloween and red at Valentine's Day, it all started with Johnson's miracle on 36th Street. Where else I'm at? Nowhere but New York City. 36th Street. And it should be important to know that the Consumer Product Safety Commission estimates that 14,700 people visit hospital emergency rooms each November and December from holiday-related decorating accidents. Yeah, so be careful, man. Them lights are dangerous. There's a lot of people getting on roofs, people putting lights all over the place. I mean, it is it is a dangerous proposition. The worst part, though, Amin, is going through the box and trying to untangle. I would say the second worst part is when you have a string and half of it doesn't work and you have you to figure out which one light bulb you have to unscrew a little bit. Check the fuse. <laughs> you got to check the fuses, man. To make sure that they can all light up. So anyways, I'm sure you guys can all relate. Moving on to holiday names, Amit. There are several great holiday names, but we want to start with 
a city in Florida, Amit. I don't know if you've been there. That's the only place you can start. You have to start with a city in Florida. Christmas, Florida, an unincorporated town, has a population of 1,162, according to American Fact Finder. Some other places with cool holiday names, Amit. North Pole, Alaska, population 1,659. Santa Claus, Indiana, population 2,201. Santa Claus, Georgia, population 238. And Noel, Missouri, at 1,476. And if you know about reindeer, the village of Rudolph is where you want to be. The village of Rudolph, Wisconsin, with a population of 418 people. Shouts out to all of the folks living in those towns and all the mail I'm sure you guys receive around this time of the year. And two additional notes. Fun fact about Christmas, Florida, they have a Christmas tree there year round. So that's always up, decorated and lit. And then if you're from Santa Claus, Georgia, remember, go vote. That's right. Go vote Santa Claus, Georgia. And like I said, the town of Christmas, Florida is lit. That's what the kids be saying. So it's lit in Christmas, Florida. We see y'all. Speaking of numbers, $291,085, which is the value of U.S. imports between January and August 2005 from Christmas Island, an Australian territory in the Pacific Ocean south of Hawaii. Perhaps some of these were Christmas gifts from Christmas Island. Yeah, and if, if my memory serves, Amit, you proposed in Hawaii around that time frame. So, I mean, you know, there's a gift. Oh, yeah, you're right. January. The months, the months. The months. <laughs> and according to the National Retail Federation's 2017 data, consumers spend an average of $967.13 for the holidays, although individual spending can vary widely. In 2018, total retail sales in November and December hit a staggering $717.45 billion. So we like to spend the money in the U.S. And we know there's a lot of people suffering that aren't working right now due to the coronavirus pandemic. But there's a lot of shopping still being done. That's right. Online shopping. People buying on Amazon, getting stuff delivered. Let's switch gears a little bit. We're going to stick with money, but we're going to kind of uh, really specify to one piece of Christmas and specifically the 12 days of Christmas. And the total cost for the 12 days of Christmas this year is $16,168.14. That's right. That's an exact, very specific number. That number is actually down 58.5% from 2019 when the same feat cost $38,993. The least expensive year recorded, uh, which was 1995. And yeah, for those who aren't familiar with the song, and we know we have a lot of international listeners as well, on the 12 days of Christmas, my true love gave to me that song, right? So all the things in that song add up this year to $16,168.14. Lastly, I would like to talk about Kwanzaa. And I want to drop a little Kwanzaa stat on everyone. So a study from the Public Policy Polling Foundation found that 4% of Americans said that they celebrate or primarily celebrate Kwanzaa during this holiday season, which is close to Hanukkah's 5%. 
surprisingly close actually that shocked me but of course way less than the 90 percent of people who celebrate christmas however it's important to note that four percent of americans is still over 12 million people so a fairly well celebrated holiday in the united states we wanted to wish everyone a very merry christmas a safe and wonderful christmas and a much much better peaceful restful new year It's time for our new segment, NFL Nuggets, where we go beyond the numbers and bring you the stories within the story of the stories that matter within the NFL. NFL Nuggets beyond the numbers of week 14 of the NFL. Last week, I said behind the numbers. How could I, Ahmed? I'm editing the piece, and I heard myself say behind the numbers of week 13. So beyond, beyond the numbers, beyond the numbers, beyond the numbers podcast, beyond the numbers of week 14 of the NFL. I'm going to be honest. Since we published this on Sundays... (laughs) My weeks are all messed up because we're talking about last week, but I'm thinking about this week. So I got 13, 14, 15. I don't even know sometimes. So I'm sure I've said the wrong week when talking about the previous week. It's happening. We do all of this for you. Again, my cousin Vinny. I wore this ridiculous outfit for you. (laughs) But before we start this segment, if any of you out there are listening and have not watched my cousin, just go watch it. Go watch my cousin. Holiday movie, family movie. Go watch my cousin Vinny. It's this segment gonna... brought to you by my cousin Vinny. Available That's right. in stores everywhere. Right. <laughs> you get on Amazon Prime, find you it. You know where you have it and it never goes anywhere. I have the hard copy Blu-ray, baby. I got to have that one. <laughs> so, so let's jump back to week 14. And let's look at the COVID scoreboard. So the regular season games played, 223. The remaining games in the season, 33. That's 87.5% of the schedule finished in a pandemic or seven-eighths of the schedule. Done. Impressive. Yeah, and we told you guys about the holidays. We've talked about Thanksgiving. We've gone beyond the numbers of Thanksgiving, beyond the numbers of Christmas. But the gesture of the holiday season in the NFL, Amit, goes to Chargers owner Dean Spanos. On Friday, about 110 Chargers employees on the business and community side, not on the football side, got what could be called as a COVID hardship allowance in their paycheck. No idea how much that was, Amit, but reporters were told it varied depending on years of service and was actually a good chunk of supplementary income for many of those who are struggling. So a lot of times we talk about football, we talk about sports and we forget. There's people that work in the front offices. There's people that work all throughout the industry, not just the guys we see playing on Sundays and not just the coaches. It's still it's still good to note that they are trying to give back to the communities around them, whether it's directly around the stadium, uh, staff that they have, or the larger community that they're within in terms of providing relief, food, all those things. And it is the holiday season. And as we get closer to New Year's, I know that the, the spirit of giving does go up across the board for whether it's individuals like you or me uh, or corporations. And, and that's what these teams are. They're corporations. So, yeah. So shout out to Dean Spanos. Thank you. Now let's jump into the numbers. Frank Gore from 
the U. At age 37, Gore set the NFL record for games played by a running back this Sunday with his 240th game. And who's number two on that list? Lorenzo Neal at 239 games. Longtime Charger Lorenzo Neal. So Oklahoma's last two quarterbacks faced off Amit, Murray and Hertz each accounted for more than 400 rushing and passing yards and each accounted for three passing touchdowns and one rushing touchdown. Murray had one of his biggest wins in two years. His final numbers for the game, 27 of 36 for 406 yards passing and three touchdowns, one pick, eight rushes for 29 yards and one touchdown. This is the future of the NFL, Ahmed. These two guys on display were pretty amazing, and we'll get some more thoughts about the Eagles quarterback situation in a few. As the Alabama running game ended the game against my Gators, Ahmed, so too does Derrick Henry end games for the Titans, and his record was broken. His college rushing record was broken during that Gators game. That's right. The Titan of Tennessee. That's what we need to start calling. He's a Mack truck. The Titan of Tennessee is headed for his second straight rushing title. He'd be the first to win back-to-back rushing championships since LT, another Charger, did it in 2006 and 2007. Henry's 147 yards shredding of the Lions gave him a 195-yard edge over Dalvin Cook with road games at Green Bay and Houston remaining. Henry's averaging, averaging 111 rushing yards and 1.1 touchdowns per game since the opening day of 2019. What a trail he's leaving. Absolutely insane. Michigan man Thomas Brady threw for 320 yards in the second half to beat the Falcons, who must have been having nightmares about another Brady comeback, blowing a 17-0 halftime lead. Not exactly the same thing as blowing a 28-3 lead in the second half of a Super Bowl, but still, it's got to be rough. The Falcons are just having a rough year. Like you said in your number of the day, Amit, Tom Brady threw for 320 yards in the second half. And it's ironic that, as you said, the record for the Falcons since the Super Bowl game Now, it's ironic that Tom Brady has had his most productive day as a Buccaneer, a 390-yard, 110.4 QBR quarterback rating day. The same day the Patriots are eliminated for the playoffs for the first time since 2008, he's headed for a season Amit at 43 when he'll be better statistically in all categories, yards, touchdown passes accuracy and rating than he was last year in new england 43 he's still getting it done you know what else he has on it i mean he's got antonio brown he's got the sun my friend the sun he's got 70 80 degrees tampa bay you could throw the ball it's not snowing it's not freezing cold it's not in the 30s it's not in the 20s you can get some stuff done when it's not freezing cold i'm just gonna say that as a as a Tampa boy myself. TB on AB, this is what Tom Brady had to say after Antonio Brown won the game winning touchdown in the game. Quote, he's done a lot of work to get to this point. Just proud of him, his focus and how he's prioritized different things. 
as quarterback, it's tough sometimes because you have a lot of guys open and you've got to distribute it to different guys. Mike Evans gets a lot of looks. Chris Godwin gets looks. AB gets looks. And as quarterback, there's one ball. You can't split it in three or four. Like I said, AB caught the game-winning 46-yard touchdown pass from Tom Brady to beat Atlanta on Sunday. It looks like that's been working out for them to this point. Devin White Amit, middle linebacker for the Bucks, doesn't get enough credit. He is balling. White is just 22 years old, okay, on the opposite spectrum as Thomas Brady. And he's in his second season, but he is definitely the quarterback of the defense. And on Sunday in Atlanta, he had his best day as a pro. Three sacks, 12 tackles, two passes defended against Shout out to Devin White. Yeah, the Bucks have some weapons on offense and defense. It's nice to see it falling together. We got to talk about the Buffalo Bills who have won the AFC East. And it's the first time they've done it since 1995. Josh Allen wasn't born. LaVon Allen, his mom was four months pregnant with him during that time, Amit. So how crazy is that? He was in the womb the last yeah. time the team won. You can't forget the coach of the current Buffalo Bills, Sean McDermott. Well, he was still in college. So we went in the Wayback Machine, Ahmed, for week 14 because it felt a lot like 2015 because the following guys scored this past Sunday. Dex Bryant, Larry Fitzgerald, Antonio Brown, Le'Veon Bell, and Frank Gore. That sounds like my fantasy team back in the day. Yeah, and it's Des Bryant, but you can call him Dex because he puts the X up. I see it. He throws the doing. X up, so he's Dex. You know what I'm saying? That's yeah, Dex I Bryant. Feel you. Patrick Money Mahomes and that bad man Aaron Rodgers. But I think we should give a little shout out to Ryan Tannehill. He's had 24 starts with the Titans. So let's compare his last 24 stats to Patrick Money Mahomes' last 24 starts with the Chiefs. Tannehill has a higher QBR of 114 to 105.9. Mahomes, I'll give it to him, has more passing yards. He's got 6,983 passing yards to Tannehill's 6,080 passing yards. But Tannehill has more touchdowns, 61 to 56. They both have thrown 10 interceptions in that time frame. And Ryan has a slightly higher completion percentage at 67.7% compared to Patrick Money Mahomes' 66.4%. Now, with all those similarities, I know you're going to point out one of them has a ring. One of them does. One of them has a ring and one of them has a half a billion dollar contract. <laughs> but that money is coming. And I got to give a shout out here to my boy, Amit. You know, I worked at EA Sports. You know, I worked on Madden. You know, I worked on NCAA as well. And we had someone on Madden, Amit, who said Tannehill was the real deal. He put his rankings in the game. He said, this guy's for real. And he never had an opportunity to show with the Dolphins. So we laughed and thought he was full of it. These numbers prove Ryan Tannehill is the real deal. Marcus Mariota had his show me the money moment this past week due to an injury for Derek Carr. And by playing in 60% of the snaps in that game, Mariota earned an extra $200,000 in contract incentives. And he increased his 2020 salary by $625,000. So all in all, he did get the L, 
but he tacked on $825,000 in earnings in one game just by playing. And you know what? In that game, the guy on the other side, most likely going to be the best quarterback out of that draft. Just your boy. Herbert. Your boy. Y'all are hanging out at the hotel. I call him Haircut Herbert since he came out with the fade, even though we got to get him edged up so he can look crispy now that he makes real money in the NFL. That's right. That's right. That band has the most 300-plus passing yard games for a rookie in NFL history with seven games this season. He passed Andrew Luck's record of six such games, which he did in 2012. And you know defense wins championships. You know I played on the defensive side, so I got none but love for the defense. So we got to highlight some defense on here too, Amit. TJ Watt is the first player in Steelers history to have 13 or more sacks in three consecutive seasons. He joins Arizona's Chandler Jones, who did it from 2017 to 2019, and Jared Allen, who did it from 2007 to 2009, as the only NFL players to do so in the past 25 seasons. Again, there's three of those guys. TJ, JJ, and a Derek out there balling. They're getting it done. And lastly, I don't know if this should be a stud or a dud, but Dak Prescott. Dak, pay that man, man, Prescott. Still has more passing yards. Still has more passing yards. 1,856 passing yards this season than Sam Darnold, who has 1,767. Dak hasn't played since week five. He didn't even finish all of his game in week five. We are now heading into week 15. As I said, I'm every week that passes by that Dak's not playing, his value increases tenfold. He's showing how great he was. He's showing the Cowboys cannot do it without him. He's showing that he's still better than guys who are still playing and fully healthy, and he hasn't been able to. Dak, we wish you well. Pay that man. Pay that man. And I see what you it, did with the passes by. That's good. That's good. You know, you know, you know, we do that once in a while. But it was a historic day. I'm in a bad way for New England. And Heather, earmuffs, please. Shout outs to Heather, her favorite team. New England's 22 to 12 loss in Miami evicted them from the playoffs for the first time in 12 years and ensured their first non winning season in 20 years. Since Belichick's first Patriot team went 5-11 and in 2000. And what's amazing is 5-11 and is the last season before they got Thomas Brady in with New England. They, ha- they are 6-8 and right now with two games to play in their first season without Thomas Brady. We'll see how it ends up. John Gruden, Amit, when he's down, he is down. But barring a 2-0 finish and lots of help from some AFC losers, this will be his ninth straight year as a head coach. Six with my Bucks, three with the Raiders, with zero playoff wins. In those nine seasons, his teams are 17 games under 500. And it's amazing, Amit, because for half of this season, we were talking about how great the Las Vegas Raiders looked how real they looked, and how they were doing some damage in the AFC, how the season has turned. And, of course, the ninth straight year after he won with your Bucks, right? Yes, yes, because after that, he became trash as well. <laughs> that was Tony Dungy's Super Bowl that Gruden just coached. 
That's fair. That's fair. Again, how the season has turned, Ahmed. The Steelers were a perfect 11-0 through week 12. Since then, they've gone 0-3. In their three-game losing streak, the Steelers have scored 49 points. During that same time frame, the Jets have gone 1-2, scoring 54 points. The Steelers are the first team in NFL history to lose multiple games with 11 or more wins against a team with four or less wins. The Washington Red Tails did it in week 13 and the Bengals in week 15. And talking about the Jets again here, if the Jets and Jags each finish the season 1-15, and because the Jets won a game, Telly. The Jets won a game. Bip, bip, bip. Alert, 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 alert. But that ties them with the Jags. So if the Jags lose out and they both go 1-15, the Jags would get the first overall pick in the 2021 draft. And here's why. Despite the 23 games remaining that impact the strength of schedule tiebreaker, the Jets' opponent's win percentage should still exceed that of the Jags' opponents, which, as the tiebreaker, will automatically give it to the Jags. So, after all that tanking and all that talk about where is Trevor Lawrence going to go, looks like he may end up in Jacksonville. Yep. And speaking of quarterbacks, I'm at my dud of duds, and we'll leave it here, is Carlson Wentz. And this has nothing to do with what he's done on the football field. This is purely based on his attitude. Wentz leads all quarterbacks with 19 giveaways this season. And quote, Wentz was quoted, is not pleased with the way events have unfolded since being benched. Well, Carson Wentz, the Eagles aren't pleased that your touchdown to pick differential is plus 26 in 2017, is plus one this year, and his completion percentage is the worst in the league, and only Sam Darnold's passer rating is lower. It's completely unacceptable to me, Amit. You should root for your team, and I point at Kyle Trask, sat on the bench for three years, came in, and he's about to win the Heisman Trophy. Jalen Hurts, was benched in Alabama, sat for a whole year in Alabama. Nick Saban sang his praises. He transferred to Oklahoma, got his chance, played there, and now he's getting a chance. And Carlson Wentz attitude, instead of I need to improve, I need to get better, I need to cheer on my teammates is, well, I'm not happy with how events have unfolded. And apparently he wants out and has no interest in being a backup quarterback. To me, that's ridiculous. To pay someone that much money in the NFC East, which is just one large dumpster fire, that team should be way better than they are right now. And just like you said, they're still paying him his money. So what? Sit on the bench and collect your money. No concussions, no injuries. Sit on the bench. If something happens, you come back in, you earn your chance. Look at what Jalen Hurts did in Alabama. He got benched for Tua. He stayed around in the national championship game. They pulled Tua, put him in. He wins the game for Alabama. He didn't complain. He didn't sit there and try to try to badmouth the team, the coaches, his teammate. Now they're both successful NFL quarterbacks. Just bide your time and be patient. Carlson Wentz, you're better than this. Hopefully Jalen Hurts continues to do well. It's fun to see him play. It's fun to see yeah. him succeed now that he's had that opportunity. Right. But so again, you wait until after the season to, yeah. to complain. And like I said, I mean, and we, and we put this spin on, on the pod often because it's something that sometimes goes overlooked. But I would I would put this question forward. We've talked about it with coaches. 
consistently in NFL Nuggets. We've talked about it with when it comes to opportunity and how folks are branded. But what if Carlson Wentz was a black quarterback complaining about being benched after playing poorly? It would not go over well. And it would be turned into a story about his attitude and the guy is selfish and the guy doesn't want to win. So I really don't think he should he should have this attitude for being benched when he wasn't doing well. He deserved to be benched. Let's wrap this thing up. We gave you guys an update on the college football finals. As Amit said, the Invitational, since they're including Ohio State and Notre Dame this season. And I made my pitch for Kyle Trask for Heisman, my final pitch. He leads the nation in passing yards, passing yards per game, total touchdowns, and touchdown passes. Oh, by the way, he leads that category by 11. We went beyond the numbers of Christmas. We found out that the wreath signifies the reason for the season. The nickname St. Nick comes from an actual St. Nick and the translation of his name in Dutch to Sinterklaas and then Santa Claus. We also learned that Coca-Cola made him look jolly and Montgomery Ward imagined the very first Rudolph. And you should definitely Google Prince Albert of Germany to see the very first Christmas tree. And I think we could say that was the first instance of something going viral. Also, the birth of the tradition of the Christmas tree. We, went on, we also went beyond the numbers of week 14 in the NFL. Thomas Brady's having his best statistical season while the Patriots are missing the playoffs. And Carson Wentz, well, he just has to be a better teammate and a better player, actually. Grow up, man. And lastly, Amit. We recorded early this week so you can get on the road. This is the last time we'll be coming to you from Florida to California. Although we did keep this thing coast to coast and when you get back to New York, we'll still be coast to coast. So we, we still have you guys covered across the entire US of A. So tell us a little bit about this experience, this drive and what you've had to do to get back home. Well, yeah, you know, on the way down when we came down was crazy. You know, we were in the middle of it all. Uh, everyone was really unsure about anything in terms of how it spread and all of that so it was a 20-hour direct no-stop trip uh for us uh which i think i drove just a little over 17 hours in a day so that was that was a rough one but on the way back it's going to be a little you know you're a little better prepared so if you get tested three days before you leave to head back to new york come into the state quarantine for three days and then get tested in state as long as you show up negative on both ends you're good to go. We're going to have to register. We actually have a registration process online that we have to fill fill, fill out before we leave. Um, so that'll be done. But, you know, they're not messing around. So sounds like you're be... entering the NBA bubble, man. Right? Test before, then right? you go, then you quarantine, test again. Once you're good, if not, you get fined. You're like James Harden out here. But guess what? Guess what? The NBA bubble, that worked, right? No yeah, one that's got true. Tested, that's right? true. <laughs> Regular NBA season with no bubble. It took one day for them to have to cancel a game. One that's day. True. Very true. Very true. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. So, I'm it might sound a little bit different next week when we come to you guys. Well, I can say from all the Beyonders, we wish you and Barbara a safe trip back to New York City. We want to wish you guys again. Hope you had a wonderful, by the time you hear this, a Merry Christmas. And man, I don't think any of us can wait for the new year to get here fast enough. <laughs> that's right. That's right.
Thank you for going beyond the numbers with us. We're a weekly podcast dedicated to going beyond the numbers of sports and life to bring you the story within the story of the stories that matter. We're available on all major podcasting platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. Whatever you're listening on now, please be sure to click the follow or subscribe button to get our latest content. And remember, you can find us on Instagram, Beyond the Numbers Podcast, and on Twitter, at BeyondTN Podcast. Until next time, peace. peace.